Hello, and welcome to the Community Mennonite Church Podcast. This week's sermon is by Pastor Jennifer Davis Sensenig. Will you join me in prayer? Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's nothing blessed about being poor, hungry, distraught, rejected. These are terrible conditions. They're usually the result of systemic sins and injustice, oppression. Poor, hungry, distraught, rejected. Does this describe the prisoner in the United States? The guests at open doors? Poor, hungry, distraught, rejected. Is this the asylum-seeking family at the U.S.-Mexico border? Is this the Syrian refugee? Is this whole community suffering famine in Yemen? What is Jesus, our Lord, doing when he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who are weeping. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Humanity. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. Why does Jesus align the the poor, hungry, distraught, and rejected with the holy prophets? Well, first, let's consider the moral universe in which we live. When we're good, we're rewarded. When we're bad, we're punished, right? Now, I know some of you kind of want to argue that point with some counterexamples, but just stick with me for a minute. You know, if we drive recklessly, ignoring traffic rules and road conditions, we crash our vehicle. Or, or at the least, when the crash happens, it makes sense, right? Because there's a cause and effect relationship between elements in our universe. And, and we have choices, right, about driving, about traffic rules, about texting behind the wheel. Virginia may join some other states in passing a law, a punishment against the bad behavior of talking on a cell phone while driving. Anybody here do that? I, I mean, admit it. We're like, we're in the presence of God. <laughs> yeah, you've done it, right? And that distraction can be deadly. 
Now, our Bible includes many examples of reward and punishment that mirror the cause and effect relationships in God's universe. And God gets credited with being both the source of the rewards and the one who meets out punishment. Now, this theology, I, I know it's not very comfortable, but it's fitting theology for some circumstances. It's not comprehensive, it doesn't tell the whole story of life, but it works. And one of my favorite examples of reward punishment theology is in the book of Deuteronomy. You know, our congregation gives Bibles to 12-year-olds um, each January because we know that we need to learn to read and treasure God's word. And we pastors mark multiple passages, you know, that we want to uh, share with these young people, and so do mentors and parents and oftentimes grandparents and others. And I often include this, this reward and punishment theology from Deuteronomy chapter 30. But sometimes when I flip to that page, somebody else has already marked it because we love this stuff. <laughs> In Deuteronomy 30, it says, See, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I'm commanding you today by loving the Lord your God, and by walking in God's ways and observing God's commandments, then you'll live, and God will bless you. I've set before you life and death. Choose life that you may live. Young people need that message, right? I mean, I, I, I need that message. I need that theology when I'm getting kind of fuzzy and confused about whether there is a, a path, a way to be church in a messed up society. Choose the way of life, the path of the saints, the traditions that bring life and point to Jesus. And, and Jesus used this uh, reward-punishment theology when it was handy for him, depending on the circumstances. In Luke 6, this very same chapter, a little bit later, Jesus says, Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. In, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. There are many who take that path. But the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And then Jesus walks that road. And some of us follow. We make a choice. It's a great choice to follow Jesus. Years ago, I was um, getting to know this woman in a coffee shop, and our conversation was interrupted by a brief phone call. And she said, oh, okay, I'll call, I'll call you back. And then she began sharing that the call was from this man that she had with whom she had recently begun a romance. She got to know him through her work, and they were having long phone conversations on their commute. I mean, a lot of times in LA, the traffic is actually stopped, so you know maybe it wasn't as uh, risky. But they were having these long phone conversations. They were planning sometimes to meet, even though they lived on opposite ends of Los Angeles County. 
But after a while, she got quiet and admitted that he was married to someone else. Now, the human emotions around all of this were complex, but the situation was simple. She was literally driving down the road that leads to destruction, right? A crash of one kind or another was going to happen. She was so relieved, honestly. She was so relieved when someone just indicated the path of life and encouraged her to end the affair. That, that's all I said. If we have even a modestly developed conscience, this kind of, of reward-punishment understanding of life is really useful for correcting course when we've gone in a bad direction. And it's very empowering theology because it emphasizes our human choices in God's universe. Okay. The trouble is that reward and punishment breaks down, right? We can't always make sense of human experience through simple reward and punishment. Not everything that happens is a result of individual choices or even collective choices. And God's responsible for this. <laughs> you see, God intervenes. God forgives. Uh, Jesus himself says, God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. You know, how does, how does that work? God makes all things new. God shares our moral turbulence by dwelling with us in Christ, in the flesh. And, and in Christ's resurrection, God defies even death, the ultimate bad outcome. And we have no choice about that. I mean, we don't have to believe it, but we don't have a choice about it. So, so viewing life as reward-punishment, you know, directly correlated with human choice is useful sometimes, but it's not always the best way to see God's hand in the world. So now, back to Jesus' blessings and woes. These are really puzzling. It's not just that Jesus seems dead wrong about the poor, hungry, distraught, rejected folks being blessed, though that seems troubling enough. The woes Jesus announces, did you hear those? They have a stinging severity, especially for those of us who are rich, full, enjoying life, and good reputations. According to Jesus, the rewards of our lives may very well indicate allegiance to the false prophets of privilege, and oppression. Adapt this to our 21st century U.S. context. Jesus is saying that a rich, full enjoyment of life and a good reputation is most often built on white privilege and systemic racism. Oppression. So what if we believed what Jesus believed? Take these blessings first. What if we believed that there was some prophetic value shining through the broken human experiences of poverty, hunger, weeping, and rejection? And consider the woes. What if we believed, as Jesus believed, that 
social privilege and society's rewards might actually mark the site of our deepest social wounds. Jesus could see clearly. He could look out on a crowd and see us for who we really are and tell us what we needed to hear. He wasn't afraid to call down woes on those whom society rewards because he had, he had a little more in his theological knapsack than just you know, reward and punishment theology. He was free to bless the least of these because he was from their ranks. He spent nearly all his time among them, sharing their sorrows, healing their diseases, joining the poor, hungry, distraught, and rejected in solidarity. Jesus saw the crowd through a lens of grace and justice. If we believed what Jesus believed about the poor and about the rich, we would begin to create new patterns of relationships and solidarity between those society rewards and those it punishes. We would experience together the grace of our God and pursue God's justice in our communities. The first century society um, in Palestine where Jesus lived could be divided into victims and perpetrators of oppression. Everybody living under an oppressive environment, but some more victimized and some more perpetuating those systems. Jesus announces blessings for the victims and woes against the perpetrators, but they all need this liberation. God, Jesus spoke to all of them about a kingdom, a fresh society, an anti-oppression order in which all of them could be reconciled through Christ. As many of you know, uh, for the past few months, Community Mennonite Church has offered an adult education class called Racial Equity and the Church. I was honestly hoping that when we required people to commit to the sessions in January and February, that we would just reduce our numbers to more like 25 or 30. Totally didn't work. Um, 50 people signed up for this. I kind of I honestly wonder whether that's the spirit of Christ kind of agitating among us. Fifty people committed to learning together about racial equity in the church. Now, to be, to be fair, some of us have studied the history of racism, segregation, and the civil rights movement in the United States before. A few of us have previous training and experience in anti-racism work, most of us need, most of us need more education in both of these areas. And all of us live in and among institutions, including the church, that perpetuate oppression, leaving some of God's people poor, hungry, weeping, and rejected. The spirit of Christ is agitating for predominantly white churches in the U.S. to engage this work of anti-racism and anti-oppression work. Last week, our class was listening to <clears throat> theologians Dr. Willie Jennings and Dr. James Cohn, 
who traced the origins of white privilege and white supremacy in the United States to white churches' rationales, theological and biblical rationales for racism. Ugly stuff when we're looking at our history. But simply put, historically, white churches in the United States justified slavery and Jim Crow segregation that left so many black and brown people poor, hungry, weeping, and rejected, as well as enslaved, lynched, dead. This justification was considered divine punishment for being bad, for being black. And white churches accepted society's privileges of being richer and better fed and enjoying good reputations and privileges as divine reward for being white. But the post-civil rights era changed all that. <laughs> Churches began to admit cautiously to racial prejudice and to quickly bury the evidence of having justified racism and exclusion. There have been, since uh, the civil rights movement, official apologies from white churches to black and brown brothers and sisters um, they continue to this day. Um, prominent uh, Christian leaders like um, Greg Boyd and uh, oh, his name is escaping me. He writes the book, Everything Must Change. Brian McLaren, thank you. Um, these people are making public, oh, and Zahn, Z-A-H-N-D. Um, these are evangelical, kind of progressive evangelical leaders, they are making public apologies. So that, that kind of stuff continues. Churches began, since the civil rights era, churches began to sort of rediscover basic stuff that a lot of us might assume, scriptures that describe one human family made in the image of God, one diverse church. Churches began programs, uh, especially denominational level programs of multiracial inclusion, um, multicultural training at, uh, again, at the denominational levels. And these necessary changes have rarely changed the power and the accountability of historically and predominantly white churches like Mennonite Church USA transfers of power, sharing of power, accountability among those who have experienced racial discrimination is not what's currently happening. If the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed is marked by justice for the oppressed and freedom from the systemic racism which harms us all, we have a long way to go. On that day, Jesus was speaking to a large and diverse crowd. Some were from the margins, from Galilee. Some were from the centers of local power, anyway, from Jerusalem. Some were serious about discipleship. They had already decided, I'm going to follow this way of Jesus. And some were probably just 
interested bystanders, you know, curious. Some were there to be healed because Jesus is known for healing. Jesus sees all of us and sees us for who we really are. Jesus names the oppressive conditions of our personal lives and the lives of our society and our churches. Jesus blesses us. He names the false securities that we have and warns us. That's what a woe is all about. Jesus warns us. We don't all listen, and we don't always listen. And even when we hear the Lord's voice, when we hear the truth, it's so hard to believe that our world might be different, that our churches might be different, that there might be healing for all our diseases and cures for all our society's woes. As a church, gathered in the name of Jesus, we cannot believe that the kingdom of God is a privileged escape from the poor, hungry, distraught, and rejected members of the human family. No, we follow one who lived and died in solidarity with the least of these. Seeing the experiences of poverty hunger, weeping, and rejection, seeing oppression in any form, experiencing oppression in any form. With Jesus, we have to recognize that there is some prophetic value shining through the people, the brothers and sisters to whom we belong as family who are blessed and from whom we've been estranged because of powers outside our control. As a community of Jesus followers, we also see society's rewards, the privileges and the inequitable conditions as evidence of wounds in the church. The good news is that Jesus is speaking to us, turning us from the false prophets, from the false path of white privilege toward the grace and the justice of the kingdom of God. As a church, we've chosen to follow Jesus, the one who can heal our wounds and free us from systems of oppression that imprison us all and show us the path of life. In the next couple of, in our last couple of sessions in this class, we're going to be talking about what it might mean to become an anti-racist church, what kinds of steps would be appropriate for a congregation like ours, and we will share those with the whole congregation so that we can consider together how to walk faithfully in this path that Christ is showing us. Thank you for listening to the Community Mennonite Church podcast. 
Our theme music is a setting of John Wesley's text, Jesus, I Believe You're Near, composed by Matt Carlson. Jeremy Nafziger arranged it for strings. To learn more about our congregation or to plan a visit, please check out our website at cmcva.org.